everyone. Welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast. We talk about the NBA. It's Sunday night. We are joined for a special thing that we do about this time every year. Um, some some years I feel like I ask um, our guest, Kevin Pelton, who's joining us from Seattle. I feel like sometimes I say, hey, is it time for small sample size theater? And you're like, I don't know. It's a little early, a little early. Um, so teams have played between uh, nine and 13 games. And when I asked Kevin Pelton a couple of days ago, he said, okay, he gave me the, the, the stamp of approval. So Kevin Pelton, the machine, thank you for joining us for our annual small sample size theater show. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to get too large a sample. Then we get into medium sample theater, which, you know, no we good. usually do. Yeah. No. We need no we need there to be some slightly fluky things happening, so we don't want to wait too long. Okay, so we're going to go over some of the stuff that is sort of happening in the league that we question whether it's going to last. Um, I, if I was responsible podcast host, I would have gone back and listened to last year's small sample size theater and saw how how successful uh, our prediction or projections were, but I didn't. So we'll just focus on this year. And one of the things that has been um, the theme of the season so far, Kevin, is scoring, 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 scoring. And it's personified by the fact that as of tonight, and I don't think anybody's going to change, the Lakers and Nets haven't played uh, tonight yet. Um, But Kevin Durant is the seventh of these guys I'm about to list. Uh, but in Joel Embiid's playing right now, he could, I guess, technically become the eighth. But something like seven or eight guys by the time midnight strikes are going to be averaging 30 points um, on the season. That is crazy. We've only had a few dozen players average 30 points in the modern era. Uh, and I'm just going to go over them real quick before throwing it to you, Kevin. So as of this moment right now, it's uh, almost 10 o'clock on the East Coast. Uh, you know, there's games going on. but I, I, I think for the record, I think Joel Embiid is already there. He need, came already tonight, there. He came in tonight needing 36 points. Is We're currently recording with eight minutes left in the fourth quarter. He has 44. Okay, so we're going to have eight players, assuming Durant doesn't have a two-point game uh, at, against the Lakers tonight, which I would wager against. Um, so Embiid's going to crest over 30. Uh, Luka Doncic has lead the league in scoring at 34.3 points. He had like a he, – he's scoring 40 – he's having games where I'm watching him, and he's like kind of – you feel like, oh, he's he had a good game, but it wasn't great. How many did he have? Uh, 42? Oh, okay, sounds good. Um, Steph Curry is uh, averaging 33 points. Jason Tatum, who had a 40-point game on Saturday night against the Pistons, averaging 32.3 Giannis averaging 31.8 Donovan Mitchell Donovan Mitchell didn't play in the Cavs game Sunday against the the Wolves but Darius Garland scored 51 yeah he he might be averaging 30 now (laughs) you have to run the numbers uh (laughs) Donovan is averaging uh 30 uh 31.6 Shea Gildas Alexander after uh dropping how many did he have today in the garden like 38 I think I should look that up. Um, I know the the Thunder put up 145 on the Knicks on Sunday, and uh, I'm going to guess you say he, he only had 37. 37. Okay, I'm going to guess uh, Tibbs is watching video all night. Um, Durant <laughs> comes at this moment 30.5, and Joel Embiid eighth uh, 20. Uh, he's 29. But he's going to go over 30. 
Kevin, what do you make of this scoring and all these 30 point per game scores? So this is interesting because we have we have seen a trend towards more points in the league in recent years. And For I'm sure. sure we'll talk about that in a league wide context. We haven't necessarily seen a trend towards higher scores or a lot more 30 point scores in the league. There haven't been more than two guys average 30 points per game in a season since 2005-06, which was, you know, Kobe's big scoring season, Allen Iverson and LeBron James was a part of it that time. And there's only been more than four once in NBA history, which came back in 1961-62, the highest scoring league year ever, where Wilt Chamberlain averaged 50 plus, and uh, Walt Bellamy, Bob Pettit, Oscar Robertson, Jerry West did it, and then also Elgin Baylor in 48 games when he was limited, I think, to playing mostly on weekends, because I believe that was the season he was still in the reserves. So... This is something that, you know, we're above that pace and it's something that hasn't happened in six decades. So yeah. I, what I think is happening here, it's not really a sample size thing, because if you look at this through the same portion of the season, historically, there's not that many more guys who are averaging 30 points, you know, 12, approximately 12 games into the season, a month into the season, than there are at the end of the season. There's never been more than four at this point of the season before, which actually came in wow. 62, 63, uh, the year after that. So I think part of what's happening is, so we have seen a trend towards players scoring more on a per minute basis. So if you look at points per 36 minutes, uh, the only times that we've seen more than one player average that in a season have come since 2016, 2017. And there were six of them in 2019, 20 and four in 2020, 21. But those guys didn't average 30 minutes, 30 points per game because they didn't play enough minutes. So that's the other right. trend we've had here is that uh, minutes have been trending downward for stars. And that seems to have changed. And I don't know if anyone has really noticed this. Uh, six of the seven guys on our list, not counting MB, because I didn't look him up before that game was played, uh, are averaging 35 plus minutes per game. And in total, there are 27 players averaging at least 35 minutes per game, which is the most at this point of the season since 2013-14. And by a wide margin, last year, there were 19 at this time. So I guess with the two uh, extended off seasons, Joel Embiid is averaging 35 a game, by the way, there you go. The combination of the two extended normal or the extended normal off season after these two unusual seasons. And the fact that we've got this kind of more rest friendly schedule that the NBA has adopted over time. It seems like coaches are maybe more willing to extend their stars than they've been lately. Yeah. So, you know, Luca is playing 37 a game. Tatum's playing 38 Donovan Mitchell, a little bit inflated because he's had some uh, overtime games, three of them already, but 39, uh, Durant 37. So, yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, back when you're talking in the 60s, I don't have those stats in front of me, but I'll bet those guys were all playing. We, we know what Wilt played because he played every single minute. It was over 48. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, he, he, he didn't play every single minute. He got ejected from one game. But other than the game he got ejected, he pretty much didn't come out of the game. But he did have some overtime games that carry the average over. So yes, we, Wilt was, what was 48.5, I believe was the number, but um, yes, that's a, that's, that's really good. You know, also um, one of the things that we're also seeing is just incredible three point volume and the pretty good efficiency. So listen to what these guys are shooting. Luca is averaging eight threes a game, although not shooting great. Curry 12, that's not unusual. Tatum's shooting 10 threes a game and shooting 39% on him. 10 threes a game. Donovan Mitchell, 
10 threes a game and shooting 43% on him. Um, Durant's only averaging five threes a game, but you know, um, you know, some of this is just, you know, guys are, are putting up, you know, huge numbers are huge, a volume of, of more efficient shots. And, you know, it also comes down to free throws. Um, Luca's averaging 12 free throws a game. Giannis 13 or uh, 12 free throws a game Embiid, 10 free throws a game. And you look at a guy like Shea Gilgis Alexander, he's averaging eight free throws a game, but he's shooting 93% from the line far and away the highest of his career. So you start to look through here and you start to see some efficiencies that are explaining it. Um, so I guess the question becomes Pelton. Do you see this as something that is going to stay? I, I don't believe that eight guys are going to average 30. Some of these guys are going to come back to earth. I don't know if Donovan Mitchell is going to, going to keep up that shooting percentage. For example, I'm not so sure Shea is going to keep shooting 54% from the field, but do you see the, you know, us, you know, touching those sixties records that you're just talking about? I, I think there's a chance of it. I mean, part of it is how much those minutes per game comes down. You know, as you get into the dog days of the season, our coach is going to become more focused on getting rest for their players as opposed to, you know, keeping them out there 36, 37 minutes a night. That's the factor I think that could change it. But look, the the points are there to be had in total. It's the most points we're averaging this season since 1969-70. So it's another, yeah. you know, thing that's happening at a right unlike we anything we've seen in five plus decades. Is there anything else league wide that you're paying attention to? Uh, we, we didn't mention the, the, the getting rid of the take fouls, which is maybe uh, helping a little bit, but I can't see it making that big of a difference. Is there anything else league wide that has your eyebrow up? Yeah. The, the take fouls, I think are benefit, a benefit to scoring and offensive efficiency, uh, cleaning the glass tracks, efficiency on transition plays specifically. And that's the highest that it's been at this point. And I think that the, you know, getting rid of the take foul is a, a big part of that in combination with, you know, you had efficiency had been boosted for a period of time because teams are running for threes more than they used to many right. years ago. And you put those together. By the way, when you mentioned the 10 threes a game, it reminded me, our, our former colleague, Tom Haberstrow, uh, our buddy, I, he wrote a column, I think it was probably about a decade ago, maybe like nine seasons ago, about how Steph Curry should attempt 10 threes a game. And it seemed like this unthinkable number, like, oh my goodness, a player <laughs> shooting 10 threes a game. And right. now there's just multiple guys doing it and we think nothing of it. So, you know, the efficiency has been pushing up for a period of time. The pace hasn't I really gone up uh, the last time I checked it, even with the transition take foul rule. But that combination, it's a lot of points. Yeah. So um, Curry is averaging five and a half three point makes a game. So you go to a game and you see Curry make five or six threes. It's average. Um, and so, but by the way, I would keep an eye on some guys who are underneath 30 who could get there. I'd keep an eye on, on Dame Lillard, um, who is putting up 10 threes a game and hitting 40% of them. We shooting percentages really rebounded, uh, after having that surgery, he concerned me in the preseason because he didn't shoot the ball well at all, but he has been informed. He's averaging uh, just under 29. So he could, um, he could get that up there. And John Morant is uh, right at 29 as well. We talked about him on the pod a couple of days ago. His three-point shooting has has leapt from the low 30s to over 40. I don't know if that'll hold, but he's um, 
he's also putting up a career most per game. Um, so, uh, and then I'm going to just mention one more player, Trey Young. Trey Young is not shooting the ball great early in the season. Atlanta has had kind of a choppy start. He's been up and down. Uh, DeJounte Murray has played really well. But Trey's only shooting 30% from three-point range, and he's taking eight a game. So that could very well round into form, and he's averaging 27. He could very easily make start making one more game, um, and he could be at 30. So um, keep an eye on some of those guys. Um, so that's the scoring. I want to uh, – Pelton, I want to talk about – um, the opposite direction, some defense. Um, there's a couple of teams in the top 10 of defense that um, I did not expect to see and, and really don't know if they will, um, will will hang there. But one of the big surprise teams, I don't know if eh, surprise, I mean, they expected to be better, but as of right now, Portland is nine and four. And they are sixth in defense in the league as we speak right now. Now, they, Pelton, the last three years, last year they were 29th in defense. The year before they were 29th in defense, was, which was a central reason why Terry Stotts got fired. And the year before that, they were 27th in defense. Now, I know that they have made some changes to their lineup, including bringing Jeremy Grant in, who had a huge game on Saturday. Um but the other big signing that they made, Gary Payton hadn't played yet. So, you know, they're still a small perimeter team. Um, they're, they're relying on Josh Hart um, to, to really guard guys a lot of times who are much bigger than him. Um, and it's not like Yusuf Nurkic is brand new. Like he's been the centerpiece of their defense for a while here. So that's up in your neck of the woods. What do you think about the Blazers? I mean, the Blazers are – They've they've gone from being a lottery team to being a a um, a a you know top team in the West because Lillard and Anthony Simons are healthy, but also because of this defense. Is this something that you think is tangible? I I think that they are going to be dramatically improved from 29th, obviously, but I don't think they're <laughs> going to stay in the top 10. I mean, part of it is personnel, and you looked at last season. After they made that coaching change, Stotts had tr- traditionally been playing this very conservative, drop-heavy defense, and I think it was something that probably frustrated Dame Lillard because of the fact that he knows how good he is at picking apart drop defenses. I, I've interviewed him about that topic in uh, a feature that Kevin Arnovitz and I did on the the pick and roll, and you know he saw other guards doing it to them, but that was kind of what they had to do to protect a lot of their personnel, especially being as undersized in the backcourt as they were. They're not quite as undersized now. Uh, I mean, Simons isn't really that different than McCollum. Uh, he's also been a weak defender historically, but they've yes. got guys who are active. So Chauncey Billups came in last year and is playing a lot more aggressive defense, you know, trapping. Uh, this year, they're playing a lot of zone, which is something they kind of experimented last year with last year, but it seemed like more out of desperation than, you know, it's kind of something that would be a strategy that would help change the tenor of games. And we have seen that this year, especially they'll play some really small lineups. They'll go with Justice Winslow at center to close games. They've done that a couple of times recently, including the New Orleans game. And now you're putting, you know, three guys in Winslow, Jeremy Grant, Josh Hart, who are pretty interchangeable and versatile defensively around Lillard and Simons. So all that has helped them. At the same time, one of the things we talk about every year on this podcast is 
the types of shots you're getting stabilize more quickly than how well you make those shots, particularly how well opponents make those shots against you. And Portland is number two so far in second spectrum's measure of how much teams have underperformed the quality of their shot based on where it's taken, uh, what type of shot it is, and how close nearby defenders are. And it's interesting because usually when we say this, and we'll talk about another team in this regard later in the pod, you think of, oh, teams must be missing a ton of threes against them. And that's not the case with Portland. Opponent three-point shooting has actually been pretty average against them, but it's two-point shots away from the rim. Opponents are hitting those at just a 38% clip, which is the second lowest in the league. So that's the big source of that. I think you. I think there's room for you to come up with uh, a rating system here. You can call it like the luck rating. You, you know, pick out a player that you may want to name who is lucky, but <laughs> sort of the luck rating. But I remember this was something that came into play last year with the Celtics. You know, the Celtics, if you remember, were sort of bumping along early in the season. Their defense was really down uh, below where it should have been, and um, they're you know they just weren't being very efficient. And the Celtics you know, pretty much said, I mean, you know, I'm not sure, sure that they, Brad Stevens gave interviews, but I think the message from the front office was our shot quality, both offense and defense, isn't matching the results. And we like what we're doing. And if we keep doing this, the numbers say that this should flop around. And I remember hearing that and going, I mean, okay, I guess if you say so, I mean, if your numbers say that, I believe you, but you know, if they're not going in, they're not going in 25, 30 games in. Well, guess what? Second half of the season, they killed it from three-point range, and their defense really did shut down the three-pointer, and they went to the to the finals. So, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say the stat is always um, you know, predictive, but I could just give you one example from last season where um a team's expected field goal percentage, both allowed and shot, did you know, you know, come back home, so to speak, and it made a big difference. Um, I, well, I remember Tim, Tim Bontemps wrote about this with Jason Tatum specifically that he had been, I think, the unluckiest shooter in terms of the, the second spectrum metric that uh, adjusts for a player's ability to make those shots to that point in the season. And after he wrote that, I had a friend in the league who texted me like, are we sure this doesn't mean he's just a bad shooter? And right. it, it turns out, no, no, he had been extremely unlucky at that point. The other team we were talking about at this point of the season, I don't remember if they came up in the small sample size theater podcast or not, was Dallas. Dallas couldn't make any threes. You remember Mark Cuban was talking about the new basketballs and how much they were affecting the shooters. And lo and behold, second half of the season and on into the playoffs, Reggie Bullock and Maxi Kleba and, and Tim Hardaway Jr. before he got hurt, all those guys got a lot hotter and Dallas makes it to the conference finals. There you go. So, all right. So we talk about a team that's surprisingly high in the, uh, in the, in the defensive ratings. How about a team that's surprisingly low uh, right now, the golden state warriors defending champs who, who basically made a home in the top 10 of the defense and a lot of years, the top five in defense during their uh, decade long run here of contending, you know, the, the years that they were sort of in the, you know, rebuild phase, they sort of were outliers, but when they've had their whole team, they've usually defended. As we start the week here, Pelton, 27th down there with the Rockets and Pistons and Kings, um, 27th. Is this a trend that you see continuing? This one's a little more worrisome to me. 
because mm-hmm. it is not something that is primarily based on you know opponent shot making. The quality of shots that they're giving up is also different than we've past, seen in past seasons. So if you look at this Warriors run, even going back to the last year under Mark Jackson when they lost in the first round, uh, you know the year before Steve Kerr took over and they started winning championships, they've basically always been in the top five in effective field goal percentage against, with the exception of the year where Steph and, and Draymond were hurt in 2019. 20 and they ended up in the lottery uh so far this season in terms of opponent effective field goal percentage they are 18th and the other thing that happened last season which hasn't necessarily been a trend throughout this entire run is they were extremely dominant in terms of defensive rebounding last season which is part of why you know at this point in the season they were the number one defense in the league i think and you know continued that pretty much until draymond got hurt for an extended period of time and their defense dropped off this year, in terms of defensive rebounding, they rank uh, 22nd. So mm. if you look at their numbers, the big split is whether Kevon Looney is on the court or off the court. It's not even Draymond necessarily this year who's been the indicator. It's really about Kevon Looney. And obviously, a big part of that is James Wiseman, who is now right. out of their rotation uh, and you know just has with his inexperience playing at a high level has struggled to translate his athletic gifts to the kind of, you know, impact in the paint defensively that I think you'd expect from someone, his size and athleticism, but it's also the, and I think this is a really interesting thing. The lineups with Draymond green at center that have been such a staple of this warriors run, including last season have generally been very good defensively. In addition to just being awesome offensively with more shooting on the court, This year, they've generally not been very good defensively. And I think that kind of points to the absence of Otto Porter Jr. because you no longer have as much size when you go to those smaller lineups. You know, Wiggins, Andrew Wiggins is a power forward. is Or Bielitsa, who wasn't great defensively, but Bielitsa had good size. Yeah, and even even Gary Payton II, who we talked about earlier, not playing yet for Portland, he played much bigger than his size defensively, and that helped him when, when he was part of those groups. So, you know, that's a case where... I, I don't know who that player is going to be. They played, uh, I guess, Anthony, when I was watching them the other night, it was Anthony Lamb playing with Looney. Yeah, they, they, they've with... been having a two-way guy in their rotation because yep. they're looking for somebody who can defend. Yep, and and he was making some plays out of the short roll at the other end. So, you know, that was big for them. Maybe they try him with Draymond Green so you get a little more size in those lineups without Looney is a, or Wiseman as a traditional center on the court. But this is one I feel like that's that need in particular, or maybe those two needs, if you say a backup center as well, are something they may need to look to address via trade. For the ones who get it done, Ranger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call or click ranger.com or just stop by. The NFL schedule drops this week and you can be there to catch all the action live and in person with vivid seats. Experience every touchdown, every tackle, every eye popping play of your favorite team. And to kick it off, vivid seats, the official ticketing partner of ESPN is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code hoop. That's code hoop. Download the app or visit vividseats.com today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Yeah, the, the Warriors are a team that probably is in pretty significant um, 
you know, evaluation mode on what to do with their bench and how to, how to retrofit it. I mean, I don't blame them for trying to go and give the young guys like Wiseman and Moses Moody um, an opportunity, but it hasn't rewarded them. And Wiseman, frankly, as much as I'm impressed with his tools, he just, it, it hasn't translated to results. And, um, you know, they may be, you know, a year ago at this time, as you mentioned, they were looking like a championship team. They were, we were like, wow, they look terrific. They do not look like a championship team. There are moments when they look like a championship team. If you're looking at, if you're looking at something to say, well, look, uh, this is going to be just fine. Steph has almost never been better. Um, even in his unanimous MVP year, he wasn't shooting it like this dynamically. Um, and they don't, you know, they, and they still, they, you know, they still haven't gotten much from Jordan Poole. Jordan Poole's been slumping. You don't figure he's going to slump the whole season. Um, but that defensive schematics in their bench is something, and, you know, and Steve Curry's been talking about it. And obviously you can see he's been working on it. You know, they've, they've, they've stepped forward to try to, to try to make some moves. So, um, all right. Uh, I want to take a look at some individuals now. Um, first off, uh, Kevin, I want to start with the rookie number one overall pick, um, Paolo Bancaro. He's been banged up. Uh, has missed a couple of games recently. He has been terrific. Um, really showing the, you know, the versatile offensive game that he showed in the summer league. The reason why the, you know, the magics at the end of the day just felt that, um, you know, even though he maybe wasn't as, I don't, I, you know, I'm not even sure why I don't know. I'm not going to speculate why he was not being considered by some of them. One pick. I'm just going to tell you his stats. He's averaging 24 points a game. He's shooting 46%, which you just don't see many rookies shooting mid to high 40s, even if they're big guys. He's obviously handling it a lot. He, he's getting a lot thrown his way. He's getting 18 shots a game because he's the the centerpiece of their offense. He's the hub of their offense. But usually that would mean that efficiency would go down. I mean, I could tell you, in fact, I'll pull up what LeBron was as a rookie. Now we're talking literally two decades ago, a completely different era, but LeBron was the centerpiece of the Cavs offense as a rookie. Um, he averaged 21 points a game, shot 41% from the field, um, took 19 shots. So, you, you know, you got, ban you know, he, he averaged uh, six assists. Um, Bancaro is averaging four assists, eight rebounds. Um, also shooting 77% from the line, getting to the line eight times a game, which is almost the most impressive thing that he's doing to me is the way he's seeking, um, uh, seeking a contact. And I mean, I don't want to compare him too much to LeBron, but you know, just he, the way he kind of is a sort of a, a big wing who handles just comparison. LeBron got to the line six times as a rookie, just to point out that even the greatest scores ever, it takes him a while to, to learn how to do that. So, um, Pelton, what's your viewpoint of the Magic's number one pick and how he's played so far? I mean, he's been better than advertised or anticipated so far for all the reasons you laid out. If I'm if I'm reading this correctly, in this part of it, I'm, I'm looking up on the fly. It's the most points per game so far that any rookie has averaged since David Robinson in 1989-90, who had played four years of college and then served his two-year stint That's in right. the Navy. Yeah, he so, was like 24, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty different than a guy who was one and done out of Duke. 
I, the other comparison I think that makes sense, you know, you, you mentioned LeBron, but Blake Griffin, somebody who is a rookie averaged 22 and a half points per game was similar in terms of free throw attempts, but you know, not as dramatic, but he played two years at Oklahoma had that extra year of physical development after he missed his rookie season. So he was two years older at the time of his rookie season than Paolo Bancaro is now. Uh, In terms of usage rate, his share in the offense, Paolo Bancaro, fifth highest on record for a rookie back to 77, 78, the first year that we have this Mm. stat. So the four guys ahead of him, there's one one of these names is not like the others. Joel Embiid, Luka Doncic, two of the guys who are averaging 30 a game. Zion Williamson, and then Ben Gordon was the uh, the fourth player to have a usage rate over 30 as a rookie. Well, <laughs> you know, that was a bit of a different era for the Bulls. And, uh, you know, Ben at times was needed. <laughs> um, by the way, um, Jabari Smith, now he's had an illness. He hasn't been right, but um, I'm just going to point out, just going to reference how he's playing for the Rockets. And, it's not the same at all. The Rockets have two ball dominant uh, perimeter players who are using up all the possessions in uh, Kevin Porter Jr. and um, and Jalen Green. But just to point out, um, Jabari is shooting just 32% from the field, averaging 10 points and just 29% from three-point range. He is shooting the ball well from the line, but only getting there once a game. Or two free throws, one trip a game. So... Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not even saying much about him. I'm just saying like, it takes a while to learn how to play, you know, uh, in the NBA. I mean, um, we talked a little bit about Ben Matherin, uh, you know, I think out of the gate here, um, Ben Carroll and Matherin would be one and two for early rookie of the year consideration. Um, Matherin's coming off the bench, averaging fewer minutes, but uh, averaging 20 points, shooting 46% as well. He's getting to the free throw line six times a game, shooting 83% from there. Um, uh, I, you know, he's a guy who, he's a better shooter than I knew he was going to be, Pelton. He's shooting 45% from three. I didn't even mention this to you before this pod, so I'm not expecting you to have in-depth numbers on him, but I just thought if we mentioned Ben Carroll, we should, we should mention Matherin as well. Yeah. I think the common th- thread between those two guys is their level of physical development for their age and for being rookies, you know, Paolo that stood out. Uh, I hadn't seen him when I saw him at summer league since he had basically been playing at the amateur level here in Seattle and, and in the hoop summit in Portland back in 2019, I'd seen him a bunch back then, but not, you know, well, he had gone off to Duke and it was like, whoa, this guy is much bigger than I remember. And even, you know, compared to NBA veterans, he is a physical presence, which is a big factor in that ability to, you know, draw the draw free throw attempts, play through contact. And I think something similar is true with Matherin. Jabari Smith Jr. probably is at the other end of that scale where, you know, it's going to take him some time, I think, to develop his physique to that same point to handle the, uh, the physicality of NBA play. And particularly in his case, you know, I think eventually, like if he can play center at times is your backup center and, and anchor that unit and really be a pick and pop threat against slower defenders, that's where he's going to be, you know, excel. And I, I, they've tried that a little, the Rockets so far. It, it's too much to ask for him, I think, at this point. Yeah, uh, that's, you know, the Rockets are moving at a sort of a different pace um, than, other, than other folks. Uh, okay, I want to kind of go to the opposite end of the sort of production spectrum. We mentioned LeBron a little bit earlier. Now, he is banged up. He uh, is not playing Sunday night. That game is going on right now, and that's uh, Lakers. 
Um, Belton, LeBron is shooting 46% from the field, which yeah, I just praise Ben Carroll. Boy, 46% is great. Um, I want to put this in perspective. He's actually, to be clear, he's shooting 45.7% from the field so far in his 10 games. It's the lowest field goal percentage. Granted, it's 10. It's not 80. It's 10. It's the lowest field goal percentage he's had since his rookie year. I mentioned earlier he shot 41% as a rookie. Um, LeBron has been a very high-efficiency shooter for basically his entire career. Um, since 2009-10, his last year in the first time in Cleveland, he has shot under 50% of the, from the field twice in that span. Once was his first year back in Cleveland where he kind of had a reset. Statistically, he shot 49%. And then once was during the pandemic year where he won the championship. He also shot 49%. Um, he went through a, through a period early in his career, uh, midway through his career, where he increased his field goal percentage in seven consecutive seasons. Better year after year after year. Um, which is, you know, and they were like years three through 10 in his career. It wasn't like it was rookie. He was a, building out as a rookie. He actually, his first three years got better. They took sort of went sideways his fourth year and then years four through, um, or his years five through 11, he went up every year shooting 24% on three point, three point shots, Kevin. Now he has not been a good three-point shooter for most of his career. He has shot over 40% just one time in his career. Uh, last year, actually the last two years, he shot 36%. He's a career 35% three-point shooter. But he is um, shooting 24% on seven attempts a game. Efficiency significantly down. And free throw shooting down at 67, 66 67%. You know, last year he had really improved his free throw shooting, got it back up after a couple of years in a row in the 60s. He had gotten it back up to 76%. So that's a lot of numbers I just threw out there. I'm sorry for being heavy with that. I'm getting to the point that I want to bring up, Kevin, is what's your concern level about LeBron's shooting? And are you concerned that this is something that is related to age and creating space and things like this? And the fact that he has commercials of him versus Father Time playing on the on TV all the time, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I I think there's you know kind of two separate parts of this. And so you mentioned comparing him to full seasons. I went back to look at ten game stretches throughout his career so that we could kind of compare apples to apples. If you Fair. look at effective field goal percentage, this is his lowest ten game stretch since December 2015. So this is a pretty significant change from the LeBron. This is not business as usual or like a, a typical slump. In terms of three-point percentage, a little bit different. We have seen him go through stretches like this. There was about a dozen games in February 2021 where he was shooting, you know, somewhere in the low 20s from three-point range and, you know, recovered from that to some degree. Obviously, that was the season where he later missed time before the Lakers lost in the first round. But again, he shot as well as he did last season coming off of it. So, you know, I think there's more variability in the three-point shooting. What concerns me is LeBron in the paint and, and in the in the restricted area specifically. He's at 61% there, according to second spectrum tracking. That would be his lowest since 2014-15. And even last season, you know, at age 38, he was at 70%. 
So that is a pretty significant change. And that's one of those areas where there's less volatility in terms of your finishing around the rim than your, there is in terms of your three-point shooting. So I feel like that's maybe where we're seeing the age particularly start to show up. Yeah, he's he is in the last few years had more trouble beating his defender. Um, and it's not really that big of a surprise. Uh, he's facing <laughs> most nights. He's facing guys 10 to 14, 15 years younger than him. They just have live legs. Um, he's also been, you know, looking for the whistle a little bit more. I mean, LeBron always, you know, since he was a rookie has worked on the officials, but he's been complaining in the media uh, he hasn't been fined yet, by the way. I wonder how many how many times they're going to let him complain about the officiating before they ding him. I think it's been two or three times. Um, he's you know he's asking for fouls a little bit more. Um, and when you watch the Lakers play, uh, when LeBron is in transition, um, he is still devastating. He's still um, really able to get up and down the court. Um, when the defense is instead, he's able to slice through. He's able to get to the rim. He's able to get those. Um, and ones that he's the greatest and one uh, finisher in the history of the game. And, you know, he still looks good. And there's a reason why he looks for those is because against a set defense, he isn't as uh, able to, um, to create that space as he was. And he's also been faced with some injuries, the injuries he's had groin injuries, he's had abdominal injuries, and now he's got an adductor injury. Um, those are the muscles that you need to sort of create that space that space and he's kind of also protecting those injuries and, and, and dealing with, um, you know, challenges there. So um, what about the Lakers in general? Now, you know, it's kind of dangerous to talk about a team I've learned on this podcast. that's actually physically playing um, Pelton. Um, They are talk, you know, I don't know if you looked up their expected field goal percentage numbers because teams have basically stopped guarding, um, them on their three-point shot. I don't know if the stats models were, you know, constructed to <laughs> um, handle a team that is so disrespected from three-point range as the Lakers. Um, obviously, they're at some point going to get Thomas Bryant back and Dennis Schroeder and, you know, LeBron will be back soon. Um, but I, I knew they were not going to be a good three-point shooting team. I thought it was going to be their big problem. I didn't expect it to be this bad. You know, small sample size theory, you don't have to be an expert to realize that this is uh, problematic. But they're down, uh, coming into tonight, at 30% uh, on threes. And um, I, don't, I don't know what's your projection, what you think, uh, you know, how it bodes for them. So if you look at that second spectrum model, again, that accounts for player ability in addition to where the shots are coming from and how teams are performing relative to that, if you look at the bottom of the league, there's the Milwaukee Bucks, interestingly, are 29th in this, despite having started as well as they have. They've, they actually they've, are 24th in offense, yeah. which I actually considered bringing up on this pod as small sample size, but they haven't had Middleton and Giannis is not played every game. And so I'm not, I don't think it's fair to evaluate them without their second best player. So, but yeah, to, to your point they they are underperforming offensively. So they're like pretty substantially below the rest of the pack uh, and have benefited a little bit from this on defense. So their games have just kind of turned more defensive, I think, than they will be the rest of the season. And then there's another big gulf 
And then there's the Lakers <laughs> way below everyone else. To use uh, the Brad Pitt from uh, <laughs> from uh, from Moneyball, there's there's all the teams and then there's 50 yards of you know what. And then there's, <laughs> yes. and then there's the Lakers. Yeah. So, I mean, we already have seen some regression from them in terms of their shooting through three games. They were hitting 22% on threes. And that's when everyone was looking up, like, is this the worst three point shooting team of all time? And comparing three games to a full 82 game season, which it turns out is not actually very fair since then to get up to 30%. It means they've actually been closer to average shooting threes in the past 10 games before Sunday night than they have the bottom of the league. But it's it's not good three point shooting. I mean, I, I they're they're not going to shoot as poorly as they did early in the season. They may not even shoot as poorly as they have overall in terms of the thirty percent, which would be one of the worst three point percentages in recent memory. But they're not going to be a good spacing team is currently constructed. And then the other question of it is how much of that shot making is about. LeBron number one and also Russell Westbrook number two and not being the same finishers that they have been historically. Yeah. So, you know, again, coming in tonight and, you know, Westbrook will probably make 11 threes tonight or something and totally undercut this. And, you know, I'll be ashamed about this podcast. Um, he has actually made his only threes taken tonight, but he came into tonight shooting 36% on threes which would be his career high. <laughs> um, last year, he shot 29. We'll, we'll give him 30. We'll round it up for him for 32 years ago, 32. Um, this is the year he was in Houston where they uh, were playing pretty fast. He shot 26%. Uh, his last year in Oklahoma City, 29%. I won't go further. He's a career 31% three-point shooter. He hasn't been the problem. I think the problem is, is that uh, the way the teams defend him when they take the three, that even at 36%, the way they defend him, it still is a, is a negative, but for all the, 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 what you talk about Westbrook shooting Westbrook's three point shooting has been good. He's been above his career average. It's exactly what the Lakers needed. Um, but his overall shooting is the worst it's been since he was a second year player. And I think that probably goes to the interior scoring where he dominated for a decade plus Pelton. Yep. And, you know, one of the things that Tom Haberstrow and I also wrote about when he was at ESPN is we used an uh, stats Inc metric called gravity that, you know, worked to assess basically how, how closely your defender is guarding you, whether you have the ball or not. And that's obviously the concept that, you know, is affecting the Lakers with Russell Westbrook is that he doesn't have very much gravity as a three-point shooter. And one of the things we found in that research is how well you shoot threes isn't important to gravity is how frequently you shoot them. So just even not, you know, teams are willing to give up, you know, a few shots a game to someone who, you know, is going to hit a decent percentage. This is kind of the, uh, I know, I guess maybe the well, Bruce Bowen shot a decent number. I'm, not, I'm trying to think of who the best example of this is historically, but someone who's got like a very slow release, isn't going to take very many, might hit them at a decent rate, but you don't mind helping off of him because you know, you're not going to get Tucker doesn't. Yeah, PJ Tucker shoots. He doesn't shoot very often. He shoots slow, but there are, you know, he gets open shots because teams cheat off of him, but he occasionally will make a few. Yeah, it's a good one. If only starting your fitness journey was as easy as starting this podcast. 
The truth is, all the lift big, get big, and beach body ready in three weeks pressure stops most of us from even starting. And starting is what matters most. It's everything. Wherever you're beginning and wherever you want to be, Peloton encourages you to just start. With thousands of classes to get you moving and doing what you can, even if that's just a 10-minute low-impact class, they have those too. And when you're ready, take it up a gear with a 30-minute live DJ ride. Start with Peloton and find instructors that will keep you motivated to stay on your fitness journey. Learn the basics and build from there. Remember, doing something is everything. Get started with a Peloton bike or Bike Plus rental at onepeloton.com slash bike slash rentals. Terms apply. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hitch, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's ever up there, whether it's the roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit DirecTV.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. He's uh, Westbrook's like on the moon when it comes to gravity. <laughs> uh, I've I've said you know teams don't just go under on screens on Westbrook; they kind of go home. By the way, he just missed a three, so my my concern about him. Well, I'm not concerned. I hope he has a good game. I don't wish anything against him, but um, my concern for the for the <laughs> integrity of the pod that he has a huge shooting night when we talk about that. Um, so, Kevin, is there anything else that you uh, early on here have looked at and uh, something has uh, jumped out to you? Well, we're going to talk about the Utah Jazz. Uh, I don't think they are. Or they, I don't think they're any longer leading the Western Conference after losing back to back and losing in Philly on Sunday night. But uh, yeah, they kind of had the a they had a, had a sort of a suspect loss to the uh, Wizards, who are winning without Bradley Beal, uh, and then lost the following uh, Sunday night in Philly. Um, uh, the, the Jazz's offense has, has slowed down a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Utah being top 10, both offense and defense up to a couple of days ago was really unexpected as well as Lowry Markinen, you know, far and away having, you know, an explosive season, um, looking at the Jazz, what about them do you think is sustainable? And what about them do you think is not? So I think the part that's sustainable is that this is an incredibly deep team, which you know makes sense because you looked at them on paper. You're like, after trading Gobert and Mitchell, they don't have a star, but because of the fact that they've gotten, you know, multiple decent players back from Cleveland and in Minnesota, and then from Detroit with Kelly Olynyk and the Boyan Bogdanovich trade, they've got a lot of competent rotation pieces. So uh, in my wins above replacement player metric, if you look at guys who are above like 0.4 wins above replacement so far this season, the Jazz have the most in the league with eight, basically mm. their entire rotation. And that's a nice <laughs> they've advantage. Got, they've got eight plus players, basically. Yep. Yeah. Uh, the the part that is probably, and, and then I think offensively, 
They're shooting a lot of threes. They're shooting them at a pretty good clip, but not an unsustainably strong clip. Clip uh, Malik Beasley, I think, has been you know kind of an underrated swing factor in that Rudy Gobert trade. He was one of the league's highest volume three point shooters. Minnesota now has gone from you know near the top in terms of three point volume to near the bottom. Utah already was up there because they shot as many threes as they did, but he's helping maintain them at that level even without Donovan Mitchell, who was a source of many of those three pointers. The part that I think is less likely to be sustainable is they are the quintessential example of the team that opponents are not making threes against. Uh, It did get a little better on Saturday night when the Wizards went 16 of 36 from three, but they were number two in opponent three-point percentage entering that game. Uh, The radio broadcaster David Locke pointed out on Twitter the other day that if you look at cleaning the glasses metrics that take out garbage time, it's not as substantial. Their three-point percentage gets much closer to the average but then the thing is, the, if you look at their overall numbers, that top 10 defensive rating is partially benefiting from those garbage time misses. So if you compare them on cleaning the glass, they entered Sunday 18th in defensive rating as opposed mm. to 10th on the NBA.com advanced stats, which include all possessions. And that takes their net rating down almost a point per hundred possessions. So these are yeah. you know, some of those classic indicators of things that are going to regress to the mid. So, yeah, so one of the probably the biggest surprise about the Jazz is how well they were defending, considering that they traded Gobert and Royce O'Neal. And even if you, you know, we don't know what kind of defensive coach Will Hardy was, you know, Quinn Snyder had established established a reputation. He was going to really have strong defensive teams. They were routinely in the top five. Um, And then, you know, Gobert makes a huge difference. But they changed over half their roster. So you don't typically see teams that change over half their roster and bring in a, a new coaching staff, be good defensive teams out of the gate. And yet they were exactly the same defensively by the numbers as they were a year ago when they had Gobert and a and a more honed system. So like that to me was one of the biggest surprises. And what you're basically saying is there's already some cracks in that. And although they didn't get blown out uh, in Philly on Sunday, they only give up 105. And they're on a long road trip. I mean, you know, teams are going to have losses. You know, the Cavs started out eight and one. They've now lost four in a row. But some of it was they were on a five-game road trip. And, you know, it's the toughest part of any season when you go on long road trips like that. And now they're a little banged up. I mean, it just you go through those periods. So even if the Jazz, you know, take a couple more here on the chin, I'm not – I still think that they're very much overperforming. What do you think is sustainable for them? Yeah, like I said, I think the depth is going to be a, a huge asset yeah. through them through for them through a long season. And offensively, in addition to the shooting, they share the ball tremendously. They move without the ball. Like all of that has yeah. been a joy to watch in terms of the shot quality they're getting. I don't think that is, you know, particularly fluky what they're doing at the offensive end of the court. So there was a couple comparisons I gave for them. I wrote about them in my mailbag over the weekend. And the negative one was last year's Wizards, who we did talk about at length on the small sample size theater pod. Because it was that same thing where they were they were an identical 10 and 3 at that point and had also mm-hmm. benefited from opponents missing a lot of three-pointers against them. And lo and behold, the rest of the season, opponents shot one of the highest three-point percentages in the league against the Wizards. Now, you shouldn't expect that to happen with the Jazz. That's the gambler's fallacy. But it's a sign that what you do early in the season in opponent three-point shooting doesn't predict the rest of the season. Yeah. I mean, also Bradley Beal got hurt last year and the Wizards kind of <laughs> reevaluated right. where their season was going. Um, they also made, you know, pretty big trade uh, midway through. 
Was it Porzingis last year or the year before? It was last it was, year. It right? was last year, yeah. Although he played, yeah, he played so. well after the trade. But the right. the optimistic viewpoint of it was if you look at teams that, it, so rerunning my preseason predictions with the minutes the Jazz have actually played, because obviously there was some, uh, you know, some assessment on my end that they're going to cut the minutes of their starters over the course of the season when I was trying to predict yeah. them, which yeah. they haven't done yet. They, they actually. Might, pre- they still might, but they project it as around a 500 team. And if you look at teams that are projected around 500 and start 10 and three, the odds are those odds are those are pretty good teams. They win about 49 games on average between 48 and 49, and the vast majority of them make the playoffs. So, you know, I think that he, that that assessment comes down a little bit now that they're at 10 and five, but I still think this is a team that has a realistic chance to get into the top six and avoid the play in. Well, they traded arguably their three best players. I don't know where you'd put Bogdanovich on there, but they traded arguably their three best players. Um, and so, and then, you know, focused mostly on getting draft picks in those deals. You know, I don't think they ever thought they were going to win 15 games but they weren't planning on winning 49. I don't care what anybody says. I know that the jazz are sort of like, we never said we were tanking and I'm like, okay, I get it. But you trade your three best players for draft picks. And I know that you got, you know, I know that Colin Sexton is a piece and, you know, Malik Beasley is a piece and marketing is a piece, but don't, don't tell me that you weren't trying to go downward. And if you're going to win 37 games, you are better off winning 27. So we'll continue to see the, uh, the actions over the words there, but Markkinen has been one of the big surprises of the year. He certainly is an early candidate for most improved player. He's averaging um, eight more points a game, seven and a half more points a game than he did last year. Um, uh, About six, seven more than his career average. Shooting 53% overall. Shooting a little bit worse from three-point range and rebounding the ball a lot better, averaging three more rebounds a game and really proving that he can defend on the wing. Um, You know, Markkinen showed some things last year and showed some things over the summer. I don't know if he's going to continue shooting 53%. He's a career 44% shooter. I don't know if he's going to keep averaging 22 points. He's a career 16% shooter, but marketing is a, is an improved player, Kevin. And I'm not sure, you know, we're going to, he's actually going to win the most improved award, but I do think that that's something where he is just out now at age 25 in a comfortable spot in his career. He is, you know, found a way to succeed in the NBA a little bit more. Yeah. The idea of him defending small forwards, it was like, okay, yeah, it's maybe you can get away with that in Cleveland when you've got Evan Mobley and Jared Allen behind him. And look, he doesn't have that kind of support system in Utah. Uh, you know, their starting unit with Olenek and Jared Vanderbilt doesn't have a lot of shot blocking in the front court. Walker Kessler is basically is a rookie, their only rim protector of note. And yet he's still holding his own defending wings on a team that probably has even fewer options to defend those guys besides him than Cleveland did last year. Right. And he's blocking more shots. His block rate is like doubled. Um, he's getting more assists. Um, he's not fouling. He's staying out of foul trouble. Like there's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of indicators. He's getting offensive rebounds. He's, He's never averaged more than one offensive rebound a game. He's averaging two over two. You know, he's just he's just doing a lot of things a lot better. Um, he, uh, you know, so, um, you know, I I think he's uh, he's got, he's he's an interesting spot, and also he's extension eligible after the season. Mm-hmm. So 
I think it's already going to be an interesting thing that the Jazz might think about there. Do we hold or sell on Lowry Market and playing this well? But um, that'll be a topic for later on. Well, Kevin, thank you for um, for bringing all these stats. Um, you always make us smarter. You can check out Pelton's. Um, he nobody produces more words uh, for ESPN.com's NBA um, section than uh, the Mister Mister Machine here. You can check out all his stuff on ESPN Plus. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. And thank you to Jackson Ajello, our producer. Uh, thank you for listening to Duke Collective. We will talk to you on Wednesday. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.